0: History lovers and welcome. Have you ever heard of the chickens who dreamed of learning Yiddish? Well, you're in luck if you haven't, because today that's one of the stories you'll find here in this book. It's called Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish Children's Literature. Now, before you say, hey Dean, Dean Katayanis, doesn't sound like a Jewish name. What are you doing giving me some Yiddish book? You you don't speak Yiddish, you're not even Jewish. Well, that's the point, everybody. You don't have to be of the Jewish faith to enjoy Honey on the Page. It's just like Greek stories. Speaking of Greeks, oh, imaginary foil that I just made up. You pick up a story about Hercules or a story about Zeus or when you saw a Clash of the Titans in the 80s. Yes, those are Greek stories, and they were particularly special to me. They spoke to me in a different way than they would somebody who was Jewish, but that didn't mean that everyone couldn't enjoy them while leaving them a unique part of the Greek identity. And that's what we get from this book today and from our guest, Miriam Udell, as well as those chickens learning to speak Yiddish. There are so many stories in this book. And I love that today's guest is somebody who is very accomplished. Miriam Udell has earned two degrees from Harvard, one of them a PhD. She teaches at Emory University. Her previous book was titled, Never Better, The Modern Jewish Picaresque. And it won a 2017 National Jewish Book Award in Modern Jewish Thought and Experience. You can find her at MiriamUdell.com and at Miriam Udell on Twitter if you want to see more about her credentials. You spelled that last name U-D-E-L, by the way. But it gives you an idea that here is somebody with so much knowledge, so much learning from books, and yet she turns her eyes to children's literature. And that's the point. I guess I should edit the yet out of that. Here's somebody who realizes the value in these stories and that storytelling is something that can really bring us all together, whatever our background is. So I hope that if I do my job right, you'll forget the word Yiddish in there and not think you have to know Yiddish or be of the Jewish tradition. You'll just say, as all the books that I recommend, Dean's turning me on to a great book. That's a lot of fun one that will stick with me, that I won't read and forget, like maybe some of those Disney fairy tales we think about now that are very forgettable, that aren't really exciting, that don't make you think and inspire you. These stories tell us all about ourselves, no matter who we are, but we'll speak in particular to those of you from the Jewish faith. So now that we have gathered here into a semicircle, socially distanced, but I'm picturing us all as we used to do back in Lincoln School in Bergenfield, New Jersey, when I was we, Let's join Miriam Udell and enjoy these sweet stories in Honey on the Page.
1: Do we or do we not live with a Jewish farmer? We were born here, we grew up here, and we live here, right? So we are Jewish chickens, are we not? Jewish, certainly, plucked all the chickens in unison. And if that's so, then why shouldn't we learn
0: some Yiddish, huh? I'm right, am I not? Hello, and welcome to everybody watching us on Zoom via YouTube. I'm thrilled to be joined by Miriam Udell. She's the author of Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dean. And I just went with your name. You're quite accomplished. I could say rabbi, doctor. You have many titles. And I thought that that was wonderful that you brought all that education all that knowledge into children's literature into sharing these stories with people who are just learning maybe about their jewish identity but not only their jewish identity pictures on the cover people can see here but yeah there you go hers looks much better than mine but you can see some of these pictures it reminds me of the books that i loved when i was a child it's mysterious full of excitement there's blowing wind, there's the lion. You always have to have that lion, right? When you're, when you're telling a children's story, whether it's Aslan or <laughs> any other book that you have, you always love to have the lion in there. When you pick up this book and you judge Honey on the Page by its cover, what literary treasures are we going to find inside?
1: Yeah, so actually one of the things that I love about this cover that was drawn by Paula Cohen, who did a a whole group of new illustrations for the book, is that it takes you on a little bit of a tour of the book, and it shows something of the range. So all of the stories are wafting out of this magical spice box, and the spice box is an image taken from a story by Sholem Ash, who's actually one of the, the bigger names in Yiddish literature for adults. And um, the the images of the, the story is kind of emanating forth from this spice box that Jews use on Saturday night as part of the short ritual to mark the end of the Sabbath. And the idea is that there's a second soul that stays with you throughout the duration of the weekly Sabbath. And when that soul needs to go away, because it's the regular weekday coming back, we give it spices to kind of feed it. So the spices are feeding the soul. The stories are feeding the soul. And then we come up to the wind that got angry. And this is the kind of plucky single mom who has to face down that wind on behalf of her children and ask him to calm down. And so that one has a, a kind of folktale setting to it, even though it's not really a folktale. It's an authored tale. And then we go ultra modern to the Brooklyn of the 1930s with this fire truck um, that is called by the neighborhood moms who are really freaked out because there's a little girl in 1930s Brooklyn named Sprinze. Here she is. She loves to read so much. She's always trying to escape her annoying little sister who's sent out to collect her and bring her home. And she'll go anywhere that she can read quietly, including climbing to the top of a lamppost. And the moms in the neighborhood see her up there. They freak out. They call the fire department, which is racing on its way to save Sprinze, who's actually fine. And so she's a kind of girl heroine. The ultra-modern girl heroine for its time. And then at the top, we have this magic lion who spends a Sabbath in the desert with a rabbi who gets stuck in the desert. Mm. And the lion spends a Sabbath with him and then offers the rabbi a ride on his back to catch up with the rest of the caravan that has moved on without him. So it's a real cornucopia of kind of old-fashioned folk-like, and more modern authored tales and, and poems.
0: I wanted to jump ahead because I was going to mention that when you talk about her up there on the Brooklyn Street Lamp in the 1930s. I think one of the things that we assume if we're going to go back and read old stories is, okay, I have to clench a little bit and realize that these are not going to be written the same way we might write a female character today or a Jewish character or any other kind of character that we don't put into this narrow box and i guess we all cringe sometimes but with these she shows that it's not just traditional which is a nice way to put it and sometimes that goes to the other extreme and it's stereotypical there are still female characters in honey on the page that i think anybody would enjoy and i think that that's the hallmark of good literature it's not just to take a woman and stick her in the boy's role and it's not just to make her what they call a mary sue and just that, that she's great or and that can make you not wanna put them in there at all. So I imagine you as you're translating for Honey on the Page saying, oh, hey, th- this is just a great story. That's something that you can relate to and it just she, that she happens to be a girl. What do you think that those, that her and other female characters have to say, particularly young girls since we're jumping ahead to that, as they pick up the book and as they're read it at bedtime or they read it themselves?
1: So that's a great observation and it really goes to the heart of um, why Yiddish children's literature? So this is a literature that really emerges during the 19 teens and picks up steam during the 1920s and 1930s, and it's being written specifically as an expression of a really progressive, forward-looking viewpoint. So it's not necessarily as woke as we might think (laughs) of contemporary aspirations like for the literature that we're we're writing now, but it's pretty progressive for its time. And that means a commitment to having heroines who who are girls, who do heroic things, which often actually involve not being where they're supposed to be, being lost or being out on their own in some way. It also involves talking about the, the struggle for economic equality, equality of opportunity, for racial justice, for all kinds of concerns that are still very much with us as we try to kind of bend the world into better shape. And these Yiddish authors really saw children's literature as a way of doing that. So one of the expressions of all of those progressive ideals is the creation of what I call, I'm, I'm working now on a, a book for adults about the significance of these stories. And I call it the new girl, um, the idea that you could have a girl who was brave and spirited and interesting and interested in, in the world and that she could be a really suitable heroine and role model for readers. And I think that the little girl who climbs the lamppost, Sprinze, whose name means hope, is offering a kind of hope for readers um, as far as what girlhood could become over the course of the long 20th
0: century. And what a great image to have her on a lamppost. You think what the lamppost meant to people in Brooklyn in those days, and how early, and this is early 20th century, so you're just starting to get light, electric light, and also it's right it's light in the world then you have the statue of liberty in the harbor and there she's high she's above everybody the lamp, lamp posts were very high for all those little buildings it's still very similar to that in parts of brooklyn oh. if you look at those old maps you see the church steeples and maybe the maybe the synagogue on eldridge street which is the first synagogue in north america i believe those were what were high and i always note that today it's our buildings that are high It's our skyscrapers, it's not anymore, and it says something about us. So these are all the things that adults can get out of reading these stories in Honey on the Page, and I guess in your forthcoming book. And it makes us realize that there aren't just these anomalies. As you were talking there, and because of the Jewish connection, I thought of Golda Meir. For a long time, she was just the exception, and she was the only one that you could mention, and she was almost a curiosity. And then you started to see women in top leadership positions in other parts of the world and now it's completely acceptable in fact i was watching bob's burgers and one of the daughters is looking at an old picture from the 70s and it's a doctor and it happens to be a man and she says oh i guess they had male doctors back then you know because you don't you, you see so many women now that are in the field like that you wouldn't think twice about uh, having a you probably would have a a woman doctor especially if you were a little girl you might feel more comfortable so i like all of those things and i wanted to make clear that this is a book for everybody. And the example that I used with you was the Greek myths from my own ethnic background. Nobody thinks to say, well, I'm not gonna pick up that book. In fact, uh, a lot of Greek people will say, I'm tired of being asked if I worship Zeus. Because people confuse it. So you don't want you to get confused with the mythology, but it's something that can belong to everybody in the Western world and at the world at large. And as an example, I picked up a book here that I had that I've had this book my whole life. It's called Famous Men of Greece. The copyright is 1904. One of my grandfathers, I believe my mother's father took this out of the library and you can see it was stamped a bunch of times and i'm I'm hoping that it was sold that uh he didn't just forget to return it otherwise i owe about a thousand dollars on it and so it has some of the pictures you're talking about similar pictures and obviously from that stamp you can tell people were taking this book out of the library uh it's new york city some of them were definitely jewish so i just wanted to be able to share with everybody and say why limit ourselves these are great stories and yet there's also that fine line between appreciating a story and taking that story or that tradition of another culture and assimilating it, making it your own until it's completely been washed away and we forget the origins of it. You know, you think of foods, for example, that we just associate sometimes with the American taste or things that Britain, even the word Celtic for Irish is a Greek word. And the Greeks went there. I tease my wife because she's Irish Canadian. And I say, you didn't even know what to call yourselves. And so the Greeks had to name you. And the origin of some of those words is just lost like Celtic. So I wanted to ask you about that. What, what do you hope that non-Jewish readers will take away from Honey on the Page?
1: Sure, so I think that it's a deep truth that when we are writing in our most personal vein, whether on the individual level or on the collective level about a culture, um, when we're being the most personal and individual, we're also being the most universal because there are experiences that cut across all human societies and cultures. So the way that the book is organized It actually follows a scheme of organization that I found in Yiddish anthologies from the 20s, some of the earliest Yiddish anthologies for children. I start with the really distinctively Jewish content, Jewish holiday stories. So it's a place where, you know, the casual reader can pick up a book and learn about holidays other than Hanukkah. We have a lot of Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Hanukkah in the popular culture (laughs) because of the way that it coincides in time with Christmas, right? But there are a lot of other Jewish holidays that are actually much more central to the experience of being Jewish. So I start out with those holidays and with stories about Jewish history and Jewish heroes, some of which are non-fictional and some of which are historical fiction. And then I move on to folk tales, Fables, the kind of literature where we would expect to see parallels in lots of other cultures. And if you're coming from a different set of Cultural touchstones and you pick up this book, you'll see some interesting points of comparison and contrast and then Moving from that more distinctively Jewish outward toward the more universal so fables and allegories, and then stories about going to school, which until about eight months ago was one of the most universal experiences (laughs) for children. And then stories and poems um, about everything that we learn outside of school in what I call life's classroom. And finally, the most experience, the, the most universal experience of all, which is belonging to a family, being part of family. So that's the kind of trajectory of the book. And I would say that um, what the the general interest reader can see in this book is a corpus, a body of literature that is very explicitly trying to illustrate for children what a better world could look like, a world that's built on foundational values like generosity concern for others, a rejection of social hierarchies, um, and all of that is written into
0: this book. It's a job that they have, these stories, to tell us a few things. They tell us who we were, who we are now, and then who we can become. They want to aspire, especially when you're talking about children's literature. You, you want them to look ahead and say, how can I make the world a better place and I enjoyed that about the book. As I'm flipping through it, I'm looking, I'm stopping on this or that story that's, that speaks to me. I say, this is something I would share, or this is maybe answers a question I didn't even know that I had. And I, I have a contact on Twitter and she'll often chime in with me and she'll give me advice if I'm doing a Native American story and talk about stories that that have all been adopted and names and things like that. And she said something to me once that, To be a Native American is to be teaching, is to be a teacher. To explain to people where they don't get that something is in a text or what their perspective was i was thinking that as you were just talking about honey on the page is for jewish people because some people for instance up in canada my wife's hometown she said we had one jewish family when i was growing up and so for her coming to new jersey into new york area where we are really steeped and it's one of those things people say everybody's a little bit jewish when they come from this area but that You could say that about Greeks in historia, and yet, of course, they're not. Everybody isn't Jewish. You're not going to be looked at the same way. You're not going to have the same tradition. So I I'm cautious about making it just to be a mascot, but that doesn't mean that we can't all be inspired by these stories and the biographies of the people that wrote them, and that's something that you include here in Honey on the Page. The story of who gave us this tale and that's also something that can be lost to history. So why did you make that choice? Why was it important to you that we attach the author right there to this story so that it doesn't just appear to drop in on us and maybe we just use it ourselves or we just we don't associate it with the person behind it because those background blurbs are important for me when I'm reading it to understand oh this is why he puts her up there on that lamppost. Right so
1: I have said that I created this anthology as a scholar, a mother and a rabbi. And I think the aspect that you're highlighting now Dean really has to do with the sense of responsibility as a scholar to show where these stories came from, what kinds of cultural products they are and to to understand where they fit into a body of work. Because some of the authors were educators or were authors who wrote primarily for children again and again, and others were the kind of bright light names of Yiddish culture and Yiddish literature like Sholom Ash and Kadya Molodovsky, um, or Moisha Kulbach, who, as far as I know, the only story he wrote for children is the one that I include here, The Wind That Got Angry. They all have really important, significant careers, and they are all subject to the extraordinary historical stresses that the Jewish people underwent in the 20th century. A lot of them, unfortunately, the the Biographical notes talk about how they died in the Holocaust or they were liquidated by Stalin. Others had more fortunate lives and, and outcomes largely because of migration. And we know that migration is not a simple matter to, to leave behind your your place of origin and perhaps your, your language of origin and to find your way into a different culture and to continue creating new cultural artifacts. Um, that's a that's a really extraordinary uh, thing to do. And so it was important to me to highlight all of that and to track down the biographies that had almost been lost to history. Um, When I started, putting the book together, I really wanted gender parity in my table of contents, and I couldn't quite achieve it because there was nowhere near an equal number of women writing and publishing to the number of men. So I contented myself with fewer women in the table of contents, but with longer, more substantial works by them. But I couldn't always find biographies, for those women or satisfactory biographies. So that is an example of the kind of historical material that I really had to chase down in order to be able to give the reader what I thought was the due that the stories and their authors demanded.
0: You're talking about the diaspora and about the Jewish people traveling and being cast far and wide uh, away from their homeland for their whole history, almost from the very beginning, I guess you'd say. And so you see people keeping traditions alive. And I wanted to ask you that because a key word here in honey on the page is gathered that you gathered the stories together. And to me, that was a nice image. That was the same image as bringing people together at the shul. When you finally do have that critical mass of Jewish families in a small town where there's nobody else there who shares the faith and you're no longer just having to study at home in quiet. So Where were some of the unlikely places that you found these stories to include in Honey on the page and that you only found them because somebody there kept that tradition, maybe even as an oral history, alive for you to come along one day and record the story?
1: So you're giving me way too much credit. (laughs) You're making it sound as if I went to the ends of the earth in order to find the materials. And for the most part, it was much, much easier than that. I was able to draw mostly from material that's already been scanned and digitized on the website of an organization in Amherst, Massachusetts called the Yiddish Book Center. In a few cases, they didn't have what I was looking for and I needed to go as far as the New York Public Library, the Dorot Judaica division. You could
0: have taken my book back. (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I had to, get into the microfiche once or twice, but for the most part, the, the kind of excitement and opportunity, but also the scandal of this work was that it was all hiding in plain sight, just waiting for somebody to come along and take an interest in it. And, and that's what I tried to do. Because there's the neglect that comes from something not being preserved, but then there's the travesty of neglect that can come about from having it preserved, but ignored.
0: Just leaving it there and thinking someone will get to it one day, I guess, is right. the idea or, oh, who'd want to put all these together? And that's why I think it's so precious, because if you find things like the Lou Gehrig memoir behind me, his columns were lost. Nobody even know he'd written these columns 100 years ago. And then an author comes along, finds them and recollects them and says, these are historically significant. So that's an important job as an author, just as important as going to the far ends of the earth to gather them. But even if you didn't, even if you did it from the comfort of your lovely office there with your book right behind you. Oh, and look at the little bear with the honey. That's very cute. I like that. Of course, Greeks like honey, right? But that
1: bear, if I can just interrupt you for one sec, that was actually a gift this past Rosh Hashanah (laughs) when um, Jews dip apples in honey from the son of one of the authors. Um, in the book. And this is the one that I had the hardest time finding the biography for. And a librarian at the New York Public Library, Amanda Miriam Chaya Siegel, was able to consult ship's manifests and social security records and get me the very bare bones outline of the life of Malka Malka Shechet. (laughs) And I was able to find her son, Rabbi Maximo or Mordechai Shechet, living in Omaha and interview him about the details of his mother's life. And we became friends and he sent me this honey bear. So now it keeps the book company.
0: How great is that? And I love that in Omaha. It makes me think of the Frisco kid, speaking of Jewish people teaching and and first coming to places where nobody knows who they are and needing to teach and explain. And I, I just love that about this book. I love being able to pick it up, read it and say, oh, this is why some of those things happen. This is why those holidays. And I remember the uh, my best friend as a child was a little girl and her family was Jewish. They had three brothers. I had three brothers all the same age. So talk about that. Sounds like it would be a, kind of a Brady Bunch thing, right? But fortunately, all of our parents were still with us. But anyway, and I remember her telling me when we were little that – Hanukkah is not really this big holiday. And I was blown away right at seven, because that's all you ever hear about. And people distill you down to just that, that one item where you say, Oh, okay, I know that. So now I know everything there is. Well, you have to buckle up because you're talking about this, you know, 5,000 years of history and storytelling from Moses to Sandy Koufax, as, as they say in the Big Lebowski. So it's a, it is literally a treasure trove, as it says, a treasury on the cover of Honey in the Page of books. And I just love that. And I also felt that responsibility to say, I want to help achieve that goal of making these stories that are Jewish stories that speak to you, specially, but to show they can also speak to me, who's not of the Jewish faith. And you write in Honey on the Page that Jewish enlightenment their goal was to imitate the quote normal society and that's a word with myself going back to my own experience with my wife who's Irish Canadian and who was raised Catholic and certainly not Greek Orthodox they don't have the same Easter that we do as you probably know and I, I always go back to the Jewish tradition I say the Last Supper was a Seder so you have to wait for Passover before you can have Easter that's the the Greek rule so if naturally everyone else is wrong and we're right on our Easter date But the thing is, sometimes when you're discussing it with a spouse or with somebody else, they'll use that phrase normal. They'll say normal Easter or, you know, normal food. And so I wanted to get to that with you. How is that desire to imitate and you, your desire here in the book and the desire for the Jewish people to keep that identity, to not just be washed away by the waves of history found here in Honey on the Page in the stories that you share with us?
1: I think sometimes when we talk about something being normal, that's a stand in for talking about power dynamics in a society. The thing that we think of as normal is the thing that belongs to the more empowered group, right? So in the case of the, of Yiddish speaking Jews in the 18th and 19th centuries, their sense of norms came from European Christianity, because that was the, the group that was at the top of the power hierarchy. And that's something that is still true in many, many parts of the world, um, which is why you don't have to wander into a big blue and white target Passover or Shavuot section every every spring or every early summer. But one of the ways that the book kind of questions that is by unsettling all kinds of power dynamics in the first place and really making a case in a lot of different ways, whether they have explicitly to do with religion or with other aspects of life, the primacy of whoever's on top and advocating for the underdog. And that's something that I think is is universal, that a lot of people from different cultures can can all kind of relate to to the desire to elevate the underdog a bit.
0: It's certainly something that's done here. And who are the bigger underdogs than children, right? They have no power in their lives. Here, if you can't even find a quiet place to read a book and you have to go all the way to the top of a lamppost, you're pretty unempowered. You're, everyone's telling you what to do. You, you go to school, your teacher's telling you what to do. You go to shul for your Jewish school or a Greek school on the weekends they're telling you what to do. Cub Scouts, whatever you're going to, your parents are certainly telling you what to do. So I, I like that those stories will give children something to dream about and to think about. And who can't use more stories? <laughs> You're enjoying my conversation with Miriam Udell. She's the author of Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. Thank you very much for holding it up. And you can visit her at miriamudell.com. That last name is spelled U-D-E-L. You can also find her at Miriam Udell on Twitter. Rachel Barenbaum, she's the author of A Bend in the Stars, writes of the book, quote, brimming with magical wisdom, Honey on the Page is brilliant, not only for its lyrical translations, but also for its broad collection of tales. I like those words, magic and wisdom, which are also things that we could all use more of in our lives, no matter what our age. I mentioned that you are a woman of letters, as they say. You have two degrees from Harvard, you have a PhD among them, and you teach at Emory University. You're also an ordained rabbi. So I'll put you on the spot. We would think that with all that book learning, as we call it, that you, you must have already known things. You must have, they must have washed away all that education, magic, and you must be already full of wisdom. But I know that's not the case. So what magic and wisdom did you find when you were sitting in that library or digging through the online archives of these stories as you were translating Honey on the page, what magic and wisdom did you find that made you sit up and feel a little bit fuller in your soul? Hmm.
1: I, have to, <laughs> I have to think about the, the magic, but I think wisdom itself is kind of magical and translation is also its own kind of magic. And the wisdom that I saw in these tales was the models that they put forward for children's ability to lead and specifically to lead with kindness. So you mentioned a few moments ago, Dean, how in our society, children are disempowered in so many ways. They're kind of waiting to come into their power, but one of the things that the stories exemplify is how children can step into that power right now, even in childhood, through the the power of being kind and thinking about others. So one example of that is a a story, it's a Purim story, for the holiday, the springtime holiday of Purim, which now is often thought of as a dress-up holiday, but it used to be less of a time for dressing up in costume and more of a time for giving charity to the needy. And in this story by Morge Specter, which I translate as kids, there are two young best friends. I think they're about 10 and 12 years old, if memory serves. And it comes to their attention that there is a family in their community where the children Are being uh, raised by their grandfather. They've lost their parents and the grandfather is an old water carrier who's had to um, continue working into old age so that he can try to support these children and they they can't afford a pair of shoes for the eldest girl in the family and these two boys take it upon themselves to go out on the holiday of Purim and to collect funds to raise the money to get this other girl a pair of shoes and they they meet with a lot of um, adult skepticism and they have to be kind of clued into the fact that it isn't the wealthiest people in town who are going to help them but rather the families of more modest means and that if they just stick with it and go see all of those families they won't leave empty-handed and they are able to completely transform the holiday for this poor water carrier's family, for him and his grandchildren, by bringing their earnings at the end of the day. And that has a kind of magic and wisdom in it it both. And that's just one example from many stories that I could choose.
0: There are many stories. It's not a thin book, and it's not a picture book, as we say sometimes derisively, even though I've talk to illustrators, I've made a point to of children's books, and it is hard work to get all that in, not to mention to edit yourself down to a little tiny line in their dialogue. They do a lot of heavy lifting, but these are universal stories. And I have to say, as, as strange as it may seem, but the, the movie Enemy Mine, and they go, Dennis Quaid, and he's there with Lou Gossett Jr. as an alien, and they, they start to talk about the religious tradition of the alien, and he's reading it, and he says, I've read these same stories before that are in, that are in your holy book. And he, Lou Gossett Jr. says, of course you have, truth is truth, that it doesn't, it doesn't matter where it's from. Everybody, I think when they pick up this book, they'll say, wait, I've heard a story like that and that's a a biblical story right there where uh, god will ring the bell for for the greatest donation and it's not the people who give who have the money who have a roof over their head who oh but that man gave a $1000 or whatever the currency was at the time it's not until the widow comes and she gives just a couple of pennies and then that's when god is impressed and this is the feeling that we have it we we sit around and we say well what can i do i don't have the means to help somebody well you can go door to door and start asking to help. And that is a, a beautiful message for, for children. But for any of us, it's easy for me to say, well, I'm already baked. I'm, you know, 50 years old. I don't need to worry about things like that. But I find that this book, Honey on the Page, will make me look at things differently. And it it's so aspirational. And I hope that people will pick it up, whatever their background, and they'll feel the same way. I, I know that they will because I've read it. And also that you won't Just think of Yiddish as the language of comedy, which is something that is easy to do. It reminds me of that as I'm reading the book. I'm saying, well, this puts Jewish people, even though I have many Jewish friends and have been around them, we all know that that's almost a cliche for saying, well, now my my learning is done about this person's culture because they're my friend on Facebook and I click like and wish them a happy Hanukkah or whatever the, the case may be. And because English has adopted so many words like shtick and chutzpah and kvetch and oy, of course, it's easy just to think, well, when we hear somebody speaking Yiddish, we just judge them a certain way and we're already laughing and, oh, a joke is going to come. Well, no, it's not. It's it's a language and it has this rich tradition here that we find in Honey on the Page. So I wanted to ask you about that from your perspective. And you could tell me if I got all that wrong, but I, I, I think I have a pretty good handle on it because it's important to me. But I want to know how you feel about that, about reclaiming the Yiddish culture and language. So it's not just a punchline and it's not just nostalgia for even younger Jewish people who say, oh, I, I remember that, you know, my, my booby used to speak the Yiddish, but I never picked anything up but a few of these curse words or things like that.
1: So, Dean, I am so appreciative of your shining the light on this because if people um, who are not very familiar with Yiddish, including Jewish people, have any sense about the language, it's that a it's either unusually funny or it is completely tragic, or that it somehow goes between only these two modes of extremes. you know being a joke and and being lachrymose and and really sad. Um, and, and the truth is that. Yiddish is a language like any other. It is equally possible and dif- and difficult to translate, right? In other words, sometimes people will say, oh, well, isn't it just untranslatable? And the answer is no. You know, is Japanese <laughs> untranslatable? Um, are there challenges in translating certain Japanese concepts or words? Absolutely. Um, are there, when we do the work of translation, do we sometimes also have to explain a culture, a religion, elements of a civilization? Sure, but that's part of the work of translation. So Yiddish is already, you know, kind of absolutely ordinary and unexceptional in the sense that it's a language like any other, and it has the full range of human emotion and human experience contained within it. And so that's also something that I I try to to highlight in these stories. There is one section called Mm -hmm. Wise Fools, and it's about the kind of funny, whimsical storytelling tradition. And we do have a specific trope, a specific set of stories about the Jews of Chelm. Chelm was a real place in Poland. It did not contain particularly foolish people. In fact, there was a large, significant yeshiva there, an academy of higher Jewish learning. But in literature, it came to be known as a town of fools. So that is part of our our tradition. And that's represented in the book, Helm stories and other stories of foolishness. But that's only one eighth of what's here.
0: It may impress listeners or viewers, since we're doing this via Zoom, that you didn't grow up speaking Yiddish. You described yourself as an accidental Yiddishist. And I immediately wish that that was a memoir that I could go pick up because it sounds really fun. But uh, I, don't, I didn't even know what it is. I don't know how you accidentally become a Yiddishist. But immediately again, you have that, you have that vaudeville borscht belt language in my head of somebody waking up one day and yawning and saying, oi, suddenly I'm speaking Yiddish. It's, it's just so, na- <laughs> comes so natural to us. But somehow you fell into it. And then you resisted this urge to secular and homogenize it, which is so strong, particularly for a tiny, underseas Jewish population in the world. So how did learning the language and going through that hard work you just described and rewarding work of translating Honey on the Page help you better understand the woman you see in the mirror now?
1: So I started studying Yiddish just before I attended graduate school. Like the summer before my classes started in graduate school. Yiddish is a fusion language that combines mostly Germanic elements with some Semitic elements from Hebrew and from Aramaic, and a very small but old stratum of Romance words, uh, words from, from Latin, and then whatever else Jews are speaking, so Slavic, elements that come into play, particularly in the 19th century, as Jews from the area that's now Germany moved eastward, um, English, Spanish, modern Hebrew, it all ends up in Yiddish. And I, when I started studying it, I had very strong Hebrew and of course native fluency in English, which is also a Germanic language. And I found that although of course it required effort to become fluent um, in the language, there's an expression, Yiddish, tzredzik, Yiddish speaks itself, that there was something intuitive about it. And what I mean about being an accidental Yiddishist was that I was studying comparative literature in graduate school, and I had Yiddish as one of the languages that I worked with. And I was always in a little bit of a a drama of approach avoidance with Yiddish. Was I really going to settle down on Yiddish or was I going to kind of keep it in the mix as, as one of the languages that I studied? And then I was very fortunate in 2007 to get a tenure-track job, those are vanishingly rare, in Yiddish language, literature, and culture. And so I did wake up one day and get the the nod that I uh, was being offered this job at Emory. And then behold, I was definitely and conclusively a Yiddishist. And it has been a wonderful area of, of learning to which I could devote my life. And it has been a great pleasure and a great honor to create something that will help more families and more children grow into an awareness of all that Yiddish is, that it isn't just the occasional punchline on Seinfeld, it's something much richer and much deeper.
0: I'm going to ask you to read something from Honey on the Page. It's a story by Ukrainian-born author Levin Kipnis, or if you have another choice, but his children of the field, after having read it, I don't think that I'll ever look at the word kindergarten again. And that's the kind of thing I mean about learning it. But I'll give you a second to be able to find and give us a flavor for that story by saying, I said to you that you wake up one morning and be the accidental Yiddishist. I should have said you hit your head because that would be the slapstick, the shtick, that would be an accident, right? That, in fact, you hear those stories sometimes, right? That people hit their head and suddenly they have an accent. So yeah, you should get to work on that book. I know you're doing other slightly more important <laughs> things than just writing a book for me, but boy, I, at least someday when you write your memoir and I'll be the first one to read, I, at least a chapter maybe that's called The Accidental Yiddishist, I just think that's great, but go ahead and have at that children's story.
1: Sure, so this is a story by Living Kipnis, who wrote one book of holiday tales in Yiddish, which was a kind of interruption to his career. He was an early Zionist, and so this interrupted his main career as one of the founding figures in modern Hebrew children's literature, children's stories and poetry. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of stories for children in Hebrew, and just this one volume of holiday tales in Yiddish. And this is a story for Passover. And it is based on a midrash, a rabbinic elaboration of the biblical text that's found in the Talmud, in Tractate Sotah. And the idea is that During the reign of the cruel Pharaoh who turns the Israelites into slaves and demands that all little Jewish boys be thrown in the river after they're born into the Nile, that some of the mothers in the community wanted to protect their infant sons. And so they took them out to a field and they buried them in these protective Holes and they were cared for by angels who offered them milk and honey from stones. In the Talmud, it says um, oil and honey, but uh, Lavin Kipnis is a Zionist, and the imagery associated with the land of Israel is milk and honey. So it's a little bit long. I'm not sure if you want me to read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll read a couple of passages. Yeah, give us some That's that jumps right.
0: out of you, and then we'll make people Well, buy the book, they're gonna be so interested that they will wanna pick up and read it themselves.
1: Perfect, so it starts out, who has ever seen or heard of such a thing? Children sprouting out of the earth like grass in a field. Of the kind sun sending her golden rays onto their little heads, and the heavens dew dripping its pearly drops upon them. Of songbirds singing cheerful songs and butterflies fluttering by them all around and around of a soft breeze caressing their hair and of angels covering them with their wings and rocking them with lullabies. And then it starts describing this field of apple trees and uh, the Pharaoh's decree that every little boy that is born to the Jews must be cast into the river. The Jewish mothers didn't obey the villain. They hid their newborn boys and each night when it grew completely dark, the mothers would zigzag their way to the apple field where they lay down their tiny newborn boys by the roots of the trees and prayed, apple tree, apple tree, the grief, it drives me wild. As you guard your apples, please protect my child. And when the dew fell and polished the grass with its pearly drops, the mothers cried, pearly little blades of grass, the grief, it drives me wild from burning heat and frigid cold, please protect my child. When the morning star appeared and the birds began to sing, the mothers lamented, tuneful little songbirds, the grief, it drives me wild. Sing your happy little songs, lull to sleep my child. And then the story describes how the children were cared for by angels, an angel for each and every child. They stroked the children's little heads so that their hair grew very long, soft and silky and covered their whole bodies. They gave every child a pebble in each hand, one a milkstone, and the other a honeystone. After that, they dug out pits near the roots of the apple tree and padded them with grass as a mother makes a bed for her child. They laid the children in the pits as a mother lays her child in the cradle and they sang heartfelt songs as a mother lulls her child to sleep. And so then the third section of the story is called In the Kindergarten, that's Kindergarten, or Garden of Children. And it describes how the sun comes up large and dazzling, and this made the earth split open, and the little heads began to sprout forth like pretty flowers. In the blink of an eye, the entire field was full of little children, like a very large kindergarten. And the sun promises that it's going to dawn brighter than ever on the day of days. And finally, that day arrives and the sun comes out and says, dear wonderful children, long have you lain in dark little beds and you haven't seen me shine in many days. Wicked Pharaoh has robbed you of my light, but now I'm going to repay the debt to you by lighting up seven times brighter. So the sun illuminated the field, beams of sunlight flooded in and the children bathed in light. They got up, found their footing and began to grow bigger and taller. And just like that, they were already young men, tall and handsome as date palms, strong and brave, a large army of heroes standing at the ready and waiting for their liberator. And that, of course, is Moses who comes and and leads the way. And with courage and pride, with loud singing, they strode to the gates of Egypt, and the entire people, the children of Israel, marched after them with their heads held high. So it's a really beautiful image of a generation of children that has been consigned to death. And not only do they evade death and evade slavery, um, but they grow up with this kind of consciousness of free people, and they're able to lead the rest of the people, the older generations, out to freedom.
0: And freedom, to me, listening to you say that, brings to mind a question that I was, I was maybe going to skip, but it connects because we think of freedom being, oh, I'm not in chains, I'm not, I'm not locked up, there's nobody telling me what to do, and it's the flip side of the empowerment, or one of the sides of it, that we often keep ourselves in intellectual chains. We don't pick up this book, it's not a banned book, but we think, well, no, why should I read a book by a tradition that I don't share? It's probably not even for me. Probably, what if somebody sees me reading it and thinks, uh, why are you reading our stories? And that's certainly not the case. And that's why I keep trying to hammer that home. Because to me, you told so many stories in other venues that I've seen you in. For instance, one about the Lost Ark of Yiddish, which is another chapter title for that memoir that I'm hoping you write someday. And about the persecution, about the resurrection then of the Jewish community under Cuba's communist dictatorship, where at first religion is entirely banned, and so they have to react one way and and erase everything except they don't erase it and I just thought that that was a really inspiring story a really sweet story and as somebody who every time I knock a hole in the wall and I do some construction myself I have built these shelves for instance I did my kitchen and I found that the gentleman had signed it who framed the house in the 1950s he'd signed inside the soffit in the kitchen to me that's a dream to open things up maybe it's all those children's stories I read but that's a story, the lost Ark of Yiddish, this Ark that is found in Cuba. So briefly tell us that story and how that tale of resilience or I don't I didn't even know what you would call it, of, of hiding. It's similar to the kids maybe there in, in, the, in the kindergarten that they're being buried and being hidden from Pharaoh. What does that tell us about the story of the Jewish diaspora that these stories have survived in Honey on the Page?
1: Sure. So I grew up in Miami and um, my teachers were Cuban, and the, the frame of reference in Miami is definitely always, you know, Cuba. So I've always been kind of obsessed with Cuban music and
0: you spoke food and culture and literature.
1: literature. Right. right. I spoke Spanish. That was the first foreign language I learned. I was actually in an intensive immersion program in school starting when I was 10. And I was very fortunate um, to marry a man, Adam Zachary Newton, who is a, a scholar and a, a dance partner for both my body and my mind. We, we both love to dance. We okay. dance salsa together, and um, we're also able to kind of dance our way through our, through our bookshelves. And he was as obsessed as I was with, with salsa in particular. And we decided in 2012 to take a trip to Cuba, which was a little bit before the normalization of relations that came with um, President Obama in in 2014. And we were traveling as researchers. So I had a research project. Cuba was actually a really important destination for Yiddish-speaking Jews, particularly after the United States promulgated the Immigration Act of 1923, which took effect in 1924, capping Jewish and lots of other southern and eastern European immigration to this country. So a lot of Jews started going to Cuba and built up a community, particularly in Havana, but not only in Havana. There were communities in Santiago de Cuba, which is the second city, and in Cienfuegos, and a few smaller ones in, in Trinidad and in other places kind of dotted all over the island. And so I had a research project where I wanted to go and do some preliminary investigation into Yiddish life and culture in Cuba and we took this wonderful trip and we started out in Havana and then we took a 14-hour bus ride because the roads are kind of winding and inefficient, um, shall we say, to the eastern end of the island, to Santiago de Cuba. And I got to spend some time with that community and hear a bit of their stories. And their story was that they were meeting in a small but very beautiful, dignified synagogue that had been transformed after the revolution into a rehearsal space for a carnaval dance troupe. And there were some renovations to the building at that time. And those renovations covered over the evidence of it's ever having been a synagogue. Then in the early 90s, I think it was in 1994, but I would need to check on that because it's been a while. There was an adjustment of the constitution that re-characterized the revolution as no longer being atheist, but rather being secular, which meant that there was more room for the practice of all kinds of traditional religions. And so at that point, the Jewish community began kind of reconstituting, and to go back to that important word, regathering itself. And that building that had been turned into a rehearsal space, I think it was divided. So that part of it was an apartment, and part of it was a rehearsal space. And the person occupying the apartment actually had a connection to the Jewish community that had been there. And that person spoke up and advocated for kind of reconsecrating the building as a synagogue. And they arranged to bring in a Torah scroll, which is a pretty essential item for a synagogue from Havana on the Western part of the island, but they needed a place to put it. And, and time was getting short and resources were few and they took down this wall on the eastern side of the building where a Torah would typically be stored in an ark, and they found this ark waiting for them. The arca destapado, the the uncovered ark that had been just waiting there all along for the, the winds of history to kind of shift in a different direction. And so their Torah scroll arrived and they had this beautiful dignified place to put it. And for me, Yiddish is that waiting arc. It's a structure that's already been built, that's already kind of waiting for the community to rediscover it. In many cases, it's even been digitized and made available. So through projects like Honey on the Page and other works of translation, through the intensive summer programs, and for that matter, winter programs that are teaching Yiddish to new generations of curious learners, I'm hoping that we can participate in the the kind of shifting of the direction of that historical wind toward a more substantive and powerful connection with the Yiddish that's been waiting there for us all along.
0: It's such a moving story and image to have this, to have this ark hidden there and just waiting. You, you can try to wipe it out, and this has been long the story of the Jewish people, which is why I find it inspirational. And as you're speaking about that, and as we wrap up, I want to say we, we're not all going to knock down a wall and put, put an ark in there or hide a Torah, but we can pick up, honey on the page, and you can have these stories, and you can, you can have your own ark in here and have some room for the Jewish people for yiddish stories for different stories and when the when the hard time comes that's all the more reason why that that's something you can't erase and can't wipe out wherever wherever you live and that helps keep that tradition these traditions that are the basis of so many of our laws and of our lives of the Christian faith and of the Muslim faith this is where all of these things start and stories are such a great way to bring us together i'm glad that you got together with me today miriam udell i really appreciate you sharing honey on the page i enjoyed the book so much it was really fun it made me feel like a kid again and the, the best parts of being a kid not the unempowered kid who i was also one of those i never climbed to the top of a lamppost but i did have to search for solitude having two brothers in a, in a two-bedroom house and believe me you're searching for a place you can quietly read a story and just escape so i hope people will join you on these journeys here in your book I enjoyed it. You really enriched my life by sending me this book and it'll enrich any library. It's going to go right there on these bookshelves behind me and have a place of honor. I wish you the best of luck spreading the word about the book. Thank you so much for joining me and also for being the accidental Yiddishist. I'm looking forward to that book. So when you have time from your, I know your schedule's pretty open. I hope you'll get to work on some more tales. I'm looking forward to that next book.
1: Dean, thank you so much. It is, as we say in Yiddish, a, a great pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you so much. Again, the book is, and you can see it right here if you're watching this via YouTube, Honey on the Page, A Treasury of Yiddish Children's Literature really is a special book. I'm so glad that it found its way into my inbox. It's nice to stretch outside of our traditions and the things we might usually read over and over again. I know especially parents out there, you get tired of reading those same stories again and again. Well, that's certainly not the case here with Yiddish on the page. You can find new favorites However you're listening, whatever you'll be celebrating this holiday season, if you're celebrating Hanukkah, if you're celebrating Christmas, if you're celebrating nothing at all, you could still pick up the book, put it in the hands of a young person, and just watch the wonder that comes with books. There's a reason I have all these books behind me. There's a reason why I've still held on to this book. I'll show it to you again. 1904. It's the copyright. And I've had it my whole life, which is uh, not quite half that time, thank goodness, but Still, it's spoken to me throughout my life. I've been able to pick it up and I'm so glad I had it on the shelf behind me. A book like this that you don't read all the time. I could have just left it in my attic where it's resided for various periods of my life. Probably, probably 20 years at times I would not have picked it up. But you read it at different times of your life. It says different things to you. And that's certainly the case with the stories you'll find in Honey on the Page. As always, you can pick up your copy by going to the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode, clicking that Amazon link. Every time you buy a book, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual because Amazon.com gives us a little kickback. And it's not much, but it's nice to have a little something and helps me keep track of how many people are going to the site, enjoying hearing me speak to these authors and picking up the book. And I know for Miriam Udell, I'm going to want to see a lot of you out there picking up books because it's so special. And I want to know that I did the book justice and did my job and encourage you all to pick it up, check it out, put it under the Christmas tree or give it one of those nights of Hanukkah. Or even if you're watching this and it's not the holiday season, you can give it to a young person any time of year. It is by no means a light throwaway book that you'll forget about. It will stick with you and your children or children of all ages, as we like to say, for your entire life, you'll be going back to these stories. You won't look at lampposts the same or kindergarten the same again. My sincere thanks to Miriam Udell for joining us and for sharing the stories of Yiddish childhood for everyone to enjoy. It was so great to have the accidental Yiddishist with us today. I know she doesn't have a book with that title in it yet, but I am going to hold out hope. You can visit her at MiriamUdell.com or at Miriam Udell on Twitter. That last name again, U D E L. And hopefully, once you have the book, you'll see her name is right on it. So you won't have to worry about how to spell it. You can just look it up right from the book on your shelf. While you're at it, you can also follow us on Twitter at HistoryDean or Instagram at The History Author Show. You know the Twitter handle and you know the website, then you'll be set for all the books you need to find because I am always out there promoting my authors, Facebook too. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to Miriam Udell for sharing this story with me. I hope that if you know anybody in a wider audience that's in the media, you'll share these stories with them too. I know media people were always looking for programming around this time of year. The last two weeks of the year, usually you're down to the more junior members of the staff. It's not the A team or even the B team anymore. They have taken off and taken vacation. So as you saw, Miriam Udell is an excellent, smooth guest. So if you'll let me play TV producer for just a moment since I am on Zoom video, I can tell you with confidence she would make just an excellent guest. So spread the word out there because you're going to love what she has to say here in the book, Honey on the Page. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iHeartRadio. If you're a listener on iTunes, iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review there as well. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, especially if you're watching us right now. I know it's popular for people to point, but I'm honestly not sure where they put that subscribe button, but I have faith that all of you will be able to find it. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with Miriam Udell and I today.